Would you please rise as we read from uh, Daniel 8, verses 1 through 14, and I'm reading from the Holman Christian Bible. In the third year of King Belshazzar, Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and I, as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ule Canal. I don't know. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did as I, whoops, I missed some. As I was observing, a male goat appeared from coming all from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and, uh, and infuriated with him, he struck the ram shattering his tooth horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat became very great, but when, the, when he became powerful, the large horn was shattered. Four conspicuous horns came up at its pace, place, pointing toward the four winds of the heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly host, made some of the stars and some of the host fall to the ground. It made itself great, even up to the prince of the host. It removed his daily sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of rebellion, a host, together with the daily sacrifice, will be given over. The horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The daily sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mary Lynn, for reading scripture, and if you have your Bibles and you haven't already done so, you can go to Daniel chapter 8, and uh, this morning we're continuing our study uh, through the book of Daniel, and I'd like to just start with, with prayer this morning as we uh, begin studying these, these verses together. Father, I, Lord, I'm humbled by the fact that uh, these are your words and that while we read through them, and Lord, there may be questions, there may be concerns, and Lord, we know that you have provided these words for us to, to, um, to grow, to know you, to know how powerful you are, and Lord, to know uh, what a great message of hope that we have, that one day we will worship you at your feet. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will bless this time that we have together, open our hearts to uh, receive your words, open our minds to understand it, Lord, and open our eyes to, to see the beauty of who you are. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 8, and as you may have already seen, Daniel gets more visions. Yay! Now we've got, it's a football game. It's the Rams versus the Goats, and the Goats win. Uh, they beat the Rams. Uh, so the Goat, and 
modern day, like kids at school talk about the GOAT, you know, as the greatest of all time. Like Michael Jordan is the GOAT of basketball. (laughs) So apparently Tom Brady beats the Rams. So GOATs, yeah, just kidding. Um, Yeah, no. uh, Yeah, it's another vision. What is this? What's going on? Uh, You know, one of our core beliefs at Gages Lake Bible Church and something that I really like doing And something that's been true of us, at least for the last six years, perhaps many more years in our history, is this type of preaching that's called expository preaching. Uh, We made a commitment to that. Uh, That's kind of what we do. And what that means is that we take a book or we take several books or whatever, and we we preach methodically through the scriptures. Uh, We go verse by verse or, or line by line, and we're walking through that. And there are several reasons why that that I think that that's the best type, that it's an important type. Uh, Sometimes we'll do topical things like during the holidays or uh, during a special uh, promotional thing, but most of the time I really feel strongly about walking through books of the Bible uh, because we believe that this Bible that we have is inspired by God, inspired God-breathed, that there's no other book in history that can say that. And I don't mean that it's just good morals or this is good teachings, but I mean that these are the very words of God that are brought to us from the Holy Spirit, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant, it has no errors, that it's supernatural. So that when the word of God is preached, when the word of God is read and the word of God is taught, that what we are hearing is the voice of God. And then as people of God, when we hear it, it changes our lives and it makes us more uh, like Jesus Christ. And that's foundational to who we are as a church. And so do you understand that this morning that these verses are the very words of God? That they're written for you and written for me. And yes, I know there's immediate audiences like uh, uh, Ephesians is written to the people at Ephesus or Philippi has the book of Philippians. But the fact is that the words passed down through history are here. They're today, as Paul says, all scripture is profitable for us. These truths are timeless, and they're exactly what God wants us to know. They're exactly what God wants us to follow. Now, that's, that's the reason why we do this kind of preaching. But another reason is, maybe a smaller reason, but if the fact is, if we didn't preach that way, then we would most likely intentionally avoid certain places that are difficult. Uh, for example, back when we studied Hebrews chapter 6, uh, there was some controversy. What does it mean? And, and I called my brother and I said, hey, you're a pastor. Have you preached through Hebrews? No, I haven't. Well, what do you think about this passage? He goes, well, I think this. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because of this. Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, what about this? I don't know. That doesn't make sense either. I said, so what do you do? He goes, I don't preach through that chapter. <laughs> Come on. So then I'm like, hey, I'm doing Daniel. He goes, good luck. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, what are you doing? He goes, we're walking through the book of Habakkuk right now. I'm like, ew, why? <laughs> so, we're great brothers. We get all, yeah. No, there would be parts that we would just skip, right? Like if I didn't preach expository passages or messages, then there are some passages I might, we just skip over. For example, uh, Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. <laughs> like we would just stop at 6 and just, just move on, right? Like, Let's go to something that's more relevant, relevant to us. You know, let's, let's just do the No, but if we take a step back and we think about this, that Daniel 8 is part of what we call the canon of Scripture, okay? So it, it's not like, oh, by the way, we just threw this in here. No, like we said a minute ago, this is the inspired word of God, which means that it's here for a reason. And these words teach us something about God or something about our lives. And if God spoke these words to be included here, then that means that there's life in these words. That means there's something that God wants us to hear in these words. So this morning we're going to go through Daniel 8. uh, And as we heard in our first 14 verses here, that we have another vision. We have another dream. And just like last week, we had a dream in chapter 7. This chapter is really set up the same way, where the dream is given in the first part, and then the interpretation is given in the second part, okay? And so it's this, this idea of unveiling something or, or something that, that God is revealing to Daniel and then teaching him something about it. Now, as we begin this chapter, 
there's a few things that I want to show you that are different from the previous chapter. Last week we did chapter 7 and uh, we, we, we studied the beasts and we talked about that and, and now we're in chapter 8 and there's two more animals that are involved. But look at first of all in verse 1 the timing of this, okay? It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared. Okay, so right there he gives us the time frame. To catch you up if you've not been here before, Daniel begins in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 with Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. And then uh, chapter 4, we have him stepping <laughs> the end of his reign. Chapter 5, then, is the story of the handwriting on the wall. But it's Belshazzar. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. And it's actually the last year, the last night of Belshazzar's reign. Which, uh, if you study history, Belshazzar reigned for nine years before he was killed. So Daniel chapter 5 is the very last night of Belshazzar's reign. And this chapter says that the vision that Daniel had took place in year 3. So we're talking about five or six years before the handwriting on the wall. Okay, So just kind of puts you in a timeline of where Daniel is having this vision. And this is important. Because Daniel 8, the events, the, the vision here and what it means takes place several years before the handwriting on the wall. Liberal scholars will look at this and say, Daniel 8 has such specific details about what had been done that it has to have been written after they happened. But I'll show you today that it didn't. He sees it beforehand. And it's, it is important for us to remember that because we're looking at it 2,000 years plus on the other side. And sometimes we, we lose the idea of the fact that this was truly a prophecy. This was truly something that Daniel had no idea. When you read the last verse of this chapter, you realize it made him sick because he's like, I don't know what this is talking about. But, like, for example, when we talk about Isaiah prophesying the Messiah, we talk about these Old Testament prophecies, and we just don't, we, we lose the sight of the fact that these were hundreds and hundreds of years before they took place. That would, be like, that would be like somebody writing something about you back in the 1700s. So it's very important. These are, this is written before the events. The other thing I want you to notice about this is notice in verses 1 and 2 that he's very specific about where he is. Like, I mean, this is like a GPS of Daniel. Look at what he says in verse uh, 1. The third year in the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, after which it appeared to me at the first. So the, the first one he had, chapter 7, that took place in the first year. Now we're in the third year. He goes, all right, so I had that one. Now I have this one. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. He says, hey, I'm in, I'm in Susa. Now Susa was like a summer palace for the king. But he knows where he is. He says, I'm not, I'm not just in this general location. Like, I'm standing, and it says, he says, I'm standing at the bank of the Ulai Canal. Daniel knew exactly where he was, which most likely he had probably traveled to that region before, uh, so during, maybe during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Uh, so he knew the location. He had seen, he's, he recognizes. I don't think that there's a sign that says, welcome to the Ulai Canal. I think he knew because he'd been there, Okay. Now, this is very different than chapter 7. You remember how chapter 7 started? Chapter 7, Daniel says, I'm standing in front of this, this tumultuous sea, this, this raging sea, and these beasts are coming up out of it. And what's interesting is there's no sea anywhere near Babylon. And then Daniel describes the beasts that come up from the underworld, you know, and we studied that, and we said that, hey, there's a lot of people who want to spend a great deal of time trying to determine which beast is which beast, and that the key to chapter 7 is trying to figure out which kingdom. But as we said last week, that's really not the picture there. But the chapter is giving us this, this overview that there's always going to be beasts coming out, that there's, there's always going to be people that rise up against God. And I will say that those that have done the study will say, well, that beast is this kingdom, and, and maybe they're right. But my point is we shouldn't get so caught up in those beasts that we lose sight of the truth, and that is the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man that came to destroy all the other kingdoms because his kingdom is the only one that matters. So now we get to chapter 8, and it's very specific. He mentions, hey, I'm in, ex in an exact place which clues us in that chapter 8 is going to be different 
than chapter 7. So when you take chapter 7's vision and Daniel's reeling from this idea that these monsters are coming out and he's thinking, okay, if these monsters are coming up out of the sea, they're representing these, these kingdoms against God now, how do I know that these events are going to actually take place? It's almost as if God says, hey, you know what I'm going to do, Daniel? Here's another vision and I'm going to zero it in right down onto a specific part of history, which we now call history, a specific part of time And I'm going to give it to you in such detail that people reading it later will say, wow, God really knows the future. God's really in control. So Daniel 8 really helps Daniel, and it helps us to know the answer to the question, does God know the future? Oh, sure, we, well, God knows the future. But do you, do you really think about the fact that God knows the very specifics of the future? So God takes us through this series of events and shows us how he's sovereign over all creation. That God is the God who writes the story of history. He's the God who is writing the story of your life. And he knows every detail. So Daniel sees the vision and he writes about it. But did you know that he wasn't around to see it happen? We're looking back and saying, this is how it happened. So, now let's get into the chat. All of that was introduction. Look at that, great. It's a good thing I got up here early. So, all right, here we go. Daniel chapter 8 is a historical, for us, it's a historical vision. So we're going to do some history today. I I spent the last week and a half in history. So technology is great now because now I feel really well. All right, here we go. I'm going to walk through the vision. I'm going to show you three things that God revealed to Daniel through the dream and then bring it to us with what are things that God is showing us for today. First of all, what did God show Daniel? And what we'll do is we'll look at the vision and we'll also look at the interpretation in the second part. So we're going to kind of go back and forth. Look at verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, skip down to verse 20. Look at verse 20. And as for the ram that you saw, by the way, Gabriel shows up and actually tells him, this is what you saw, okay? All right. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So what we're seeing here is this is the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire. Sorry, so he sees a ram. A bizarre looking ram. A ram that's got two horns. It's got like this little one, and then it's got like this big one. And he's standing at the Ulai Canal. And this ram is great, and he charges in every direction, and nothing can stop him. Like I said, unlike chapter 7, Daniel's dream is very specific here. The interpretation is that he sees that Gabriel tells him this ram is the kings of Media and Persia. So we're not left guessing, uh, is it this one, is it that one? You know, he's specific. He says, this is what it is. So what does history tell us? History tells us that the Medes and the Persians come on the scene, and what do they do? Well, they take over Babylon. They take over that region around the Ulaika, that's right there where Daniel is. As a matter of fact, we already read it, Daniel chapter 5, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So right there, and by the way, Daniel stands before Belshazzar and says, hey, remember the, hand, the handwriting on the wall? He's like, your days are numbered. Your kingdom's going to be divided among the Medes and the Persians. Maybe Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall and he goes, that's the ram. That's exactly what I saw a few years ago. But there's this other part, like it talks about Darius the Mede. There's this other part of the empire that we hear about called Persia with King Cyrus. We've mentioned him in our study of Daniel so far, uh, that Cyrus was the one that actually started letting the Jewish people head back to Jerusalem, uh, and we looked at him earlier. But Cyrus, okay, and Darius together formed this empire of Medes and Persians. And they, cap- they capture all of Babylon. 
And what happened? It happened just like Daniel said it would. Right here. This ram, and it says it went charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could be rescued from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. But then you remember there's two horns. One's big and one's little. Why was one horn larger? Did you know that the Persian kingdom was much larger than the Mede kingdom? Also, interestingly enough, I found out that the Persians, their army marched under a war banner, and that banner was, guess what, a ram. Hmm, interesting. So there's this militaristic empire, okay, that spreads across the region to the north, to the south, to the west, and they're unstoppable. They're unbeatable. That is, until God sends this goat, a male goat that was different. Did you notice what it said? It had this conspicuous horn. That word conspicuous means unique. It's different. There's something different about it. So not only do we see the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, secondly, now in verse 5, we're going to see the rise and fall of Greece and Alexander the Great. As I was considering, a, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns to the four winds of heaven. Now, skip down to verse 21. Gabriel talking to Daniel, verse 21, he says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So what you do is you have this ram, the Medo-Persian Empire, ruling the area, and all of a sudden, this goat flies in, like it does his feet are not even touching the ground. He flies in from the west, representing this swift moving kingdom, and he defeats the ram, and he stamps him to the ground, and he takes over. Well, Gabriel tells Daniel that that's the kingdom of Greece. Now, of course, we know about the, the kingdom of Greece. We've heard of Alexander the Great and the Greek uh, empire that, the, that was there in the time, but do you remember... <laughs> This was starting to, to fascinate me because Daniel has this vision somewhere around 532 B.C. I'm a numbers person, so I like this. Around 532 B.C., Greece does not conquer the Medo-Persian Empire until 331 B.C., 200 years later. Right? And during the time of Daniel's vision, the Greeks were going through what they called their Dark Ages, meaning that they're not even an empire at that point. And it actually doesn't form until the 400. So for Daniel to hear about this goat, this empire of Greece coming in, for him, it made no sense. Who? Who is this? Actually, if you look at the last verse of this chapter, it actually makes him sick because he's like, that king, that's not even a kingdom. I keep reading. It says there's this horn between his eyes, and Gabriel says this horn is the first king. And I could not find one commentary who did not disagree that this horn represented Alexander the Great. Right? And I know in history, we've all taken history classes, that we know of the person Alexander the Great. We probably studied him in history books. And he had this army that was very swift, that was very fast. And he very quickly conquered Turkey. He went through Iran and Iraq, which was Babylon, and into parts of India. And in 334 B.C., at a river, hint, hint, at a river, Alexander's forces meet up against the forces of the Medes and the Persians. And in that battle, his army deals a swift blow to the Medes and the Persian army. The Medo-Persian army loses around 20,000 soldiers. Alexander loses around 300. And Alexander the Great conquers very quickly. He stomps the ram and he takes over. And you think, wow, 
This, this fast-moving goat takes over, and then what happened? Well, look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. If you know history, you know by age 33, Alexander had conquered the known world. Legend says that after he had finished conquering, he sat down and he cried because there was nothing left to conquer. And so he conquers the ram. The goat is now in charge. Long live the goat. And then history tells us Alexander dies at age 33. Some have said that he had typhoid fever. Uh, some have argued some other disease. All we know is what verse 8 tells us, that the horn was crushed. The horn was broken off. When it was strong, means when it's young. This Greek empire has now spread, and it's strong, and it's young, and then the king is gone. And this is where it gets interesting. So I was reading history. Alexander the Great is prophesied in Scripture here 200 years before he's even born. God, who knows all of human history, knows how influential Alexander the Great would be. By the way, he was influential to the entire world because he, when you study it, you find out he doesn't just want to conquer lands, but he actually wants to spread Greek culture through the world. This is why in the New Testament we have the New Testament written in, guess what language? Greek. Even today we're influenced by Greek culture from history. Words like democracy or politics, all of these things come from the Greek culture. And so this influential man, probably one of the most influential men in all of human history, gets about four verses here in the Bible. Almost like saying in God's economy of time, Alexander is not really that important. Because God looks and says, what I want to focus on scripture is how the world impacts my people. I want to show you how everything affects my children. Which brings us to the third thing that God shows Daniel. And that's the little horn. So the third thing, the rise and fall of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. How many of you have never heard of this guy before? Yeah. Who in the world is that? Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, let's read verse 8. The goat became great, the horn broke off, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them comes this little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled in it. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and giving over the sanctuary host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Skip over to verse 22. Gabriel speaking. And as for the horn that was broken, in which place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. By the way, the goat loses the great horn, but the goat's still there. The empire's still there, but the king is now gone. So when you read history, do you know what happens? Alexander the Great dies, and do you know what happened to the Greek empire at that point? It got divided up. Among four generals. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah, well, okay, because God knows what he's doing. It was divided up among four generals. Cassander, Lysimachus, sure. Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They're all powerful, but when you read history, you find out none of them are anywhere near the power that Alexander was. You, you can't make this up. This is exactly what happened, and this is exactly what God shows Daniel hundreds of years before it happened. All right, so the, the one guy, Seleucus, controlled the Middle East region and India. And it's basically, he, he's, get the, he's got the largest part, okay? And so he rules in that area, then he dies, and then several generations after him, this empire kind of keeps going. Another king comes from that section, Seleucus. Uh, this is the little horn. 
Did you know that more is written in chapter 8 about the little horn than anything else? There's more about the little horn than there is about the goat, than there is about the ram. There's more about this little, this little horn here. Well, who is it? In verse 9, it says he grew toward the south, which is Egypt. He grew toward the east, which was Persia. And then it says it grows towards the glorious land. Did you notice that? The beautiful land. The special land. Do you know where that is? Israel. And do you know that this guy by the name of Antiochus did exactly that? He conquered down towards Egypt. He conquered toward India. And he conquered toward Israel. He comes on the scene about 175 B.C. That's about 150 years after Alexander the Great. And what you find out is when you study history, Antiochus literally stole the throne from his nephew. The nephew was the heir of the, of the throne, and Antiochus uh, used deceit to, to usurp the throne. Skip down to verse 23. As for the latter end of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Hmm. So he gets into power through deceit. And he descends on Palestine, and now keep reading. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and people who are saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princesses, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. When you study history, you find Antiochus, when he gets into power, he descends on Palestine, he descends on Israel, and he begins to brutally persecute the people of God. And when you read back in verses 10 through 14, you get this play-by-play -play of the kinds of persecution that he's going to bring. Uh, he exalts himself. He becomes great in his own eyes. And as a matter of fact, he gives himself a title. That title is Epiphanes, which, by the way, is a modern, we use that word today, an epiphany. It literally means a manifestation or a vision of God. And so he comes into Israel and he says, I am Antiochus IV. I am the vision of God for you. He comes into Israel and this is what he starts to do. He starts to ban animal sacrifices. As a matter of fact, he goes into the temple and, and if you know Jewish culture, you know that Jews had clean animals and they had unclean animals. Well, for, a, for the Jews, a pig was considered an unclean animal. And what Antiochus does, he goes into the temple with a pig and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of the Jewish temple. He sets up in the Holy of Holies an idol of Zeus. As a matter of fact, he even gets to the point where he's sacrificing humans inside the temple. He takes copies of the Torah, the law, and he begins to burn them. But he's not satisfied. He then heads down to Egypt, and he tries to conquer it in 168 B.C., but he fails. He can't conquer Egypt. So he gets mad, and he comes back. He's so mad that he lost. He comes back, and he takes it out on the Jews, and he slaughters a bunch of them who are simply observing the Sabbath day. He banned circumcisions, something that the Jewish people considered a symbol of their connection to God. And he forces Jews to eat unclean meats. As a matter of fact, he, he then sets up his own high priest system. As a matter of fact, a lot of the background of the Jewish people in, in the Gospels, when Jesus is alive, the priesthood system at that point resulted from Antiochus. That it's no longer a bloodline priest, it's more of a political spot. Now why in the world is this happening? What is going on? Look at verse 12. Verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. 
because of transgression. Now skip down to verse 23. And the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Again, that word transgressors. It's happening because of transgressors. Because of, of a group of transgressors have reached their limit. The word transgression means sin. It's happened because of sin. And it says, when they've reached their limit, this guy shows up. That God says, you know what? I'm done. Judgment. Here's judgment. So question, whose sin caused the people of God to be thrown into exile? Their own. Their own sin. Whose sin caused them to be thrown into persecution, tortured, and executed? Their sin. The people of God have sinned. And therefore, God not only sends them off into exile, which is where Daniel comes from, in another country, but here Daniel sees a vision that because of Israel's continuing sin, that God is going to descend persecution on their land and say, hey, you're going to be in exile in your own country. One of the commentators I was reading, Ian DeGuid, says, it's certainly true that at times the sovereign Lord may bring an enemy against his people in order to display his own glory when they have not sinned against him. Yet he would hardly give his people and sanctuary over into the hand of an enemy except on the account of their own sin. This was the case in Daniel's own day. And what Daniel saw was a future repetition of the sin and judgment of God's people that had led to the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. God is showing Daniel, hey, judgment's going to happen again. The people are not going to learn their lesson. That the whole reason, Daniel, you're in exile was because of sin. And now, when you see the future, you're going to see another persecution coming. And he says, and their sin's going to reach the limit. And God's going to say, you know what? Here, Antiochus, have, have it. Because sin has terrible consequences. Well, how could God do that? How could God be silent? Because I read this recently, and it's, it's sticking with me. The silence of the father is deafening when the prodigal son leaves. When the prodigal son left home, the father just stood and watched him go. Why would God send this tyrant against his people? Because sin has consequences. You can't just keep going and thinking that, that God is going to just keep forgiving you. Paul says this in Romans. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then he uses the strongest words he can. By no means. God forbid it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, by him, by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too will walk in newness of life. And we think that we can sin with impunity, that God's just going to keep forgiving. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, you're going to reap. So this persecution comes on Israel. For how long? You notice the number given there? I told you I'm a numbers guy. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Well, what does that mean? It, well, actually, you can measure it two ways. 2,300 days or 2,300 evenings and mornings, meaning like half of that, 1,650 days. 2,300 days, seven years. 1,650 days, three and a half years. When you look at history, what you find is seven years is about the length of time of Antiochus's persecution of the people. Three and a half years is the time frame from when he takes and sacrifices a pig on the altar when until the point where they re-cleansed it after he was gone. Three and a half years. Here's what we do know. During this time, there's a revolt that happened in Jerusalem. It's called, uh, it was against the Antiochus's people, the Seleucian people, and it was called the Maccabean Revolt. You ever heard that word before? Yeah. 
And what it was was they pushed the people, Antiochus' people, out of Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, that day is still celebrated around Jews around Christmas time. It was about the oil and the lamps that didn't burn out. And it was called, what we call today, Hanukkah. So there was this revolt among the Jews. Now go back down to verse 25. By his cunning, he will make deceit prosper under his hand. His own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the princes of princes. And then now notice this. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. He shall be broken. This little horn is going to get broken, not by human hand. There's a Jewish book called the Book of Maccabees. Right? It's not Bible. It's not the scripture but it's like Jewish history. And it records this, is what it records about Antiochus. It says this, And so it came that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so hard that it tortured every limb of his body. He shall be broken, but not by human hands. You see what God is doing? Do you see what specific specificity that God is giving to help us understand, hey, I know what's going to happen. Okay, wow, that is a lot of history. You guys feel like you just went through like 400 years? <laughs> yeah. What does that have to do with us? <laughs> Our study is called Hope in a Hostile World. And uh, you just told us a bunch of stuff that was long before Jesus even came. So what does this do? What does this have to do with me? What is, I'd like to finish this morning by giving you five takeaways, five things from this chapter that, that God is showing us today and what, what the sovereign God does show to us. So he shows Daniel the vision, and he shows him, hey, this kingdom is going to rise and fall, and this kingdom is going to rise and fall, and then this guy from this kingdom is going to rise and fall, which, by the way, Daniel saw long before it ever happened. And then it happened just like he said it would. So what is he showing us? Well, we skipped over verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. He said, I don't know what I just saw. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. First of all, understanding scripture. What is God showing us? Understanding scripture requires divine assistance. It requires divine assistance. Daniel finishes his vision and he's confused. He has no idea what he just saw. He sees a ram standing there with weird horns, one big, and he's, like, he's all conquering. And then this goat flies in and destroys the ram, and they're hitting, and there's this fight. And then the horn falls off the goat, and the goat's standing there, and more, four more horns grow off of it. And then there's one little bitty one that grows off of that. And that little one all of a starts causing all this trouble. And Daniel looks up and sees a man. Hey, who are you? And this voice from the river says, Gabriel... Explain to him the dream. And Gabriel tells him, hey, this is a future picture. This is something that hasn't happened yet. Listen, this is exactly what you and I need. I'm not saying we need an angel to appear to us in the room. Because guess what we have that Daniel did not? We have a New Testament. We have the New Testament. We have both. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are a folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned means, hey, that you can only understand them through the Spirit of God. Understanding Scripture requires the Spirit of God to help you understand it. And so every time that you go to read your Bible, you should go and you pause and you pray. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119, God, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. When you spend time reading the Bible, when you spend time studying the Bible, do you go and say, God, show me today 
what you would have for me. God, give me your spirit and allow me to understand what I'm reading. It requires divine assistance. Secondly, understanding scripture prepares you for what's coming. It prepares you. This whole chapter is historical. There's no apocalyptic, in, if you look at it as a, as a future that hasn't happened. Like everything that he saw in the vision happened. God knows history and God knows the future. Daniel, this is how it's going to be. There's going to be a persecution of the people hundreds of years after you're gone. Know that. And what I love is that God doesn't paint this false narrative or show us life through rose-colored glasses. Like, he gives us reality. He gives us exactly how it's going to be. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will face persecution. The world is going to hate you because it hates my son. He doesn't paint us a false narrative. He shows you this to prepare you for what's coming. But I, I don't want to overlook this either, that, that God shows us here to prepare us for what's coming, also shows that he is in control of human history, that, that he's not surprised. When Alexander the Great came in and conquered, God wasn't like, whoops. Um, well, I already told Daniel it was going to be something, oh well. No, it wasn't a surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He's surprised by nothing. And if he's in control, why are we so hesitant to trust in him? I heard someone say uh, a couple years ago, they didn't want to have kids because they didn't want to raise them in a in this country that's going further and further away from God. And I say, you know what? Have kids. Let's teach our kids to have faith, not in our country, but to have faith in God who's bigger than our country. And let's teach them not to have rose-colored picture of faith, but let's teach them reality that one who loves Christ will need to take up their cross daily. Prepares you for what's coming. Number three, understanding scripture helps us know how to live. Go to the last verse. Helps us know how to live. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some day. Okay, so if you have a bad dream, call in sick for several days. No, no, no. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and I went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This vision physically shook Daniel and it made him sick for days. Probably because of the specifics and the reality of what was coming. And by the way, we, he didn't see any of it come to pass except for the ram. He sees the ram take over a few years later after he sees the vision, probably saying, oh, there's the first one. But he's not around for the rest of it. But notice it says he gets up and he goes about the king's business. He just carried on. Following this guy named Belshazzar. And listening to how he's getting more and more pompous about who he is. And Daniel's just like, hmm, you're not going to be around forever. But I'm going to continue on. I'm going to continue. See, all of us know that a day is coming when God is going to make everything right. We know we live in a day when things are troubling. And we know that more persecution might be coming. So how do we live now? Daniel went about the king's business. And might I suggest to you, for you and I, that we take the word king and we make it a capital king. Capital K. That we go about the king of kings business. That what we're called to do as a child of God is to continue on in faith. Get up and go to work and be diligent to live a holy life. Be obedient to what we know God has commanded us to do. See, what would you do if I told you next Sunday the world is ending? You remember, and I'm in a crowd of people that I think all of us were here, when Y2K happened, which was almost 20 years ago. 
<laughs> Y2K. I remember all the people leading up to that. What were they doing? Building bunkers and stocking up cans and, you know, oh, we're cashing in all. And people thought their electricity was going to shut off, you know. And that night we had this lock-in at the church. I was part of a youth group, and we were there. And, and the, the youth pastor decided that instead of all the teenagers kissing each other at the new year, um, we're going to pray in the new year. All right, which is a good thing, right? All right, so we're standing there, and I'll never, I'm praying, standing there with my eyes shut, and I kept looking at my watch. 59 and 30 seconds, 59, you know. And then when it hit 12, I glanced down. We prayed through the new year, and I glanced down at 12, and then I went, hmm, all the lights are still on, <laughs> right? Like, what if I told you the world is going to end next Sunday? You build a bunker, you stock up, cash in on your investments. Someone once asked John Wesley that question years ago. And this is what he responded. He responded by reaching into his bag. He pulled out his journal and he began reading all of his appointments for the next week. This is where I'm supposed to preach. This is who I'm supposed to meet with. And then he looked at the man who had asked him and he said, this, dear sir, is what I would do. I will keep living the way God wants me to live. I'm going to faithfully walk each day. I'm going to keep going to work. I'm going to keep serving others. I'm going to keep sharing my faith. You know what this is? This is Daniel continuing on with the king's work and saying, hey, I remember what Jeremiah told me to do. He told me to engage the culture, to move into the city, to be distinctive of who I am, but I'm not going to build a bunker and hide from this. I'm going to go about the king's business. I'm going to continue to be a light here in a dark place. I'm going to build houses. I'm going to have children. I'm going to live my life for God because he is the one that's in control of it. Number four. God knows your future and is writing your story. This is important for this chapter because this chapter clearly shows that God knows the details about the future. Not just, not just overall future, you know, like, oh, you know, there's always going to be this and there's always going to be. No, he knows every single part. This horn breaks off and four more come out of it, but they're not as strong as the first one. Wow, look at that in history. Alexander, how did he die? We don't know. He just died at a young age. What are they going to do with the empire? Well, I heard they're going to divide it up among four people. Wow. Who would have thought that? Four people? God knows every single detail. Do you know he knows every single part of your future? And I promise you now that no matter what evil for this week holds for you, no matter what email you get or phone call or circumstance that comes into your life, not one of those things ever surprises God. And he's in control of it. And he's working it together. For good, for those who love God. And if God knows the beginning from the end, and he says that he will never leave us, and he says that he will never forsake us, then no matter what thing we face, no matter what we fight, we know that God is with us right there. And if God knows everything about my future, it also means that he knows every sin that I'm going to commit. You ever stop to think about that? He knows every failure that I'm going to commit against him. Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet is not, there was none of them. That God knew the rest of your life from this point forward. He knows every sin that you're going to commit. Can you imagine? Imagine, husband and wife, if you could look down the corridor of your marriage and see every single way your spouse will one day sin against you. How would you react? You know how God reacts? I'm not going anywhere. I love you too much to forsake you. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for you. 
And that is why that kind of covenant love is so mind-blowing for us. And we hear that this is the kind of love that a husband and wife are supposed to portray. That's where it gets amazing. He knows your future, and he's writing your story. Lastly, number five, persecution can never separate us from the love of God. It doesn't matter what happens at Gages Lake Bible Church. It doesn't matter if our country continues to sink deeper and deeper into sin. It doesn't matter if we have to bear the brunt of horrible persecution. It doesn't matter if we're hated and spit upon. Nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 8. You know the verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Grab onto that, because that's truth. Because it doesn't matter what happens in this world, because my king is on the throne. If you go back to the verse 25, and I close with this, did you notice this mention of a prince of princes? In Daniel chapter 7, we see Jesus described as the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And next week, we're going to see in Daniel 9 that he's the anointed one. But here's this mention of the prince of princes. The little horn of the goat tries to stand up against him and thinks he's as great as, and it says that the little horn will be broken, not by human hands. That prince of princes is deity. Broken by something else, God. And the Prince of Princes is God, is Jesus Christ. God writes the story. Can I close this morning by showing you another story? Turn with me very quickly to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to show you another animal. Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to read the chapter. As closing today. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This was God. A scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, though as it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes. The seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense and all the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. 
The final word is not by a ram with two horns. It's not by a goat. The final word comes from a lamb, the lamb of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do say, worthy is the lamb. Your precious son, the lamb who looked as if it had been slain because we know that your son died for us. But we know that he rose again and that now he rules and reigns for all eternity and that in his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. God, you gave Daniel this vision of what was to come and then because you're sovereign, because you reign, it happened just as the way you said it would. And Lord, we live now in 2019 and we have promises that you're going to come again. And we know with 100% certainty that you are coming again. And maybe some of us will see it in our lifetime. Or maybe we'll be like Daniel and it won't happen for many years. But Lord, let us be about your business the way Daniel was. Let us be about continuing on, living our lives, engaging culture, sharing our faith. And Lord, we look forward to the day of one day worshiping at your feet and praising you, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin, took away my sin. God, I pray that you will continue to encourage us, to bless us as we study, as we proclaim the truth. This is in your precious holy name we pray. Amen.